and welcome to this episode of Conversations in Anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe and anthropology. Produced by David Border-Giles, Timothy Neal, Camille O'Dally, Mythley Maher and Matt Barlow and made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. Like most anthropologists, Hugh Raffles's work illuminates the connections that we as humans live amongst, showing us what it means to be relational. Now it's quite hard to whittle this down to a more specific description, because across his career, his attentiveness has been broad and inclusive. His first book, In Amazonia, melded an ethnographer's attunement with a historian's long sight to explore how the wilderness is made and remade by people. In his book Insectopedia, Raffles turns his multidisciplinary attention to the insect world, and in his latest offering, The Book of Unconformities, Raffles, unmoored by grief, meditates on relationships between humans and minerals. These descriptions I've offered of these books are partial and thoroughly preliminary. What Raffles ends up doing with these subjects and researching and writing about them is kind of alchemical. He sort of ends up spinning them into these meditations on humanity that are searing and deep and evocative like art. His fascination on the page is contagious. In this episode, Matt and Tim sit down with Hugh across the internet to reflect, amongst other things, on Raffles' career and process, on what he is learning from newer generations of anthropologists, on crafting an authorly voice, and on supporting others to find and craft theirs. It's such a pleasure to have you here in this virtual space with us, Hugh. Thanks so much for, for joining us. Uh, oh, thank you for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So we like to start these conversations by asking a little bit about how you came to find anthropology or how anthropology came to find you. And we think you were initially at the forestry school at Yale before switching to anthropology. So... Um, what turned you to anthropology initially? Yeah, I was in the environmental studies program at Yale, which was, it was the forestry school, but it was basically forestry and environmental studies. And I applied for the job at, at Santa Cruz because I had a friend who was doing, uh, who was visiting there and she told me the job, that there was this job search and I should apply for it. And I wasn't actually really thinking of applying for jobs at that point. Um, I'd just pretty much only written a little bit of my, of my dissertation. And um, I applied and it was just one of those things, you know, you sort of like went further and further and further through the process and I realised it was sort of like getting real and then eventually I went and gave a talk and then they offered me the job and I actually didn't really even know what anthropology was and then I had to write my dissertation really, really, really fast which was very chaotic but, you know, I got it done because, you know, the University of California, they, you know, they'd advertised the job for PhD in hand and then they didn't want to get sued by giving it to someone who hadn't got a PhD so the condition of getting the job is that, you know, I defended my PhD, so I had to write it really, really fast. So basically I became an anthropologist through starting in an anthropology department. But, you know, it was a very supportive environment. There's great people there. There was, you know, Susan Harding, Anna Singh, Dan Langer, Lisa Rofe, all these people who were very extremely supportive and basically taught me what anthropology was. And it also meant I didn't have to teach any, like, intro courses or core courses or anything like that for quite a while because, you know, basically because I couldn't, because I didn't know that literature. Um, so, you know, and I still am pretty, honestly, pretty scattered on that. On that. Um, but I, I guess they saw my work as ethnographic, and then I learned to see it like that as well. And I've been interested, you know, this was, I guess that was 1999, so it was sort of like the tail end of the writing culture moment, although maybe we're still at the tail end of the writing culture moment, you know, it was like, it's a very long tail. But, but... You know, it felt like it at that point. That it felt like that had sort of happened in your reading that work, sort of historically. But I was really interested in that. I was really interested in all the questions about writing strategy and authority and representation and expression. So I think I really entered the discipline that way, and have sort of always found a place for it through place for myself in it through that. Um, those sort of like questions of of writing, particularly. Was there a time when you started to feel, do you think, like a true anthropologist? Or do you still have a bit of, um, I don't know, imposter syndrome? I think so, yeah. And I think, honestly, I think I, I like that position, if I'm honest. I like the position of being sort of a little outside and inside at the same time. And, 
I've always found anthropologists to be very, very generous. I mean, really, I'm not just saying that. I mean, you know, very generous in the sense that people are really interested as a discipline in trying to understand what the edges of the discipline are and to engage with that. So from that point of view, it's been a really good place to be for someone who's try, who, who hasn't really thought of themselves as disciplined in that way. You know, so it's not so much maybe feeling like an imposter, but maybe feeling like a little bit on the outside of it and trying to engage with people who are interested in figuring out what those boundaries are and what the outside of it was. And so, you know, like, for me, I've really always thought of ethnography as a genre and trying to think about what the, what the possibilities of that genre are and how you can push it, push it as a genre. And I've found that many people in the discipline are also interested in that question. So that's been... You know, that's made it a, a good place to be as well. I've, I've certainly felt like an imposter in terms of the historical debates and trying to think, you know, like, what are the central questions of the discipline, those sort of things. I really don't feel qualified in a serious way to engage with those. It's, it's been pretty partial for me, I think, in that respect. But, but I feel like there's quite a lot of people in, in, in anthropology who also feel like that. But on the other hand, I really surprise myself sometimes. Like, the last couple of years I've been teaching a... Um, like a core graduate course. And I found myself, you know, like really saying, oh, anthropology is this and anthropologists do this and as anthropology, you know, and hearing myself say that, it's been sort of surprising, you know. Um, so I guess I have sort of, you know, come to inhabit that, you know, that position over the years, yeah. Possibly a good place to begin talking about your, you know, entry into the, the canon of anthropology. Perhaps we should talk about uh, 20 years ago, you published this book uh, in Amazonia, fully uninitiated, uh, which is a very anthropological term. <laughs> uh, could you tell us a little bit about the project, uh, about how it came about, uh, how you came to focus uh, on the particular region of Brazil that I'll, I'll get you to pronounce rather than yeah. be butcher it? Yeah, in, in, in Amapá, in the, in the sort of like the north, in the um, northeast of the Amazon. And, you know, I... Spent. I had lived in this little community. I mean, a community. I mean, about a hundred and so like hundred and twenty-five people, twenty-five houses, something like that. It's a bit of a shock for me, honestly, to arrive somewhere like that. Um, and I think for people that then have to deal with me as well, it was probably a bit of a shock as well. So yeah, there there were a couple of things. One, I sort of fell into writing about the Amazon because I was very interested in environmental questions. And this was the 1990s in Brazil. It's, it's sort of hard to, hard to like, think back to that now, but the Amazon was sort of like really at the center of environmental debates at that time in the same... It, it sort of occupied the space that, that climate change does now in some ways. You know, it was really the, the site of real environmental concern in, in Europe and North America, you know, because of deforestation and um, the impacts of that. And, you know, biodiversity was really sort of like the sign that environmentalism was organised around, I think. So I did a master's at the University of London and I was very, you know, focused very much on environmental questions and those were organised around Brazil. So because I didn't really know very much about how this worked in terms of how, like, an academic life worked, I just thought that that was my expertise at that point and so that's then what I would do. So I developed a, you know, I applied to graduate school with a with that as a research project and then I basically just continued that through without really thinking of the implications of having to go somewhere for a year and what that might be like, you know. I hadn't really thought that through at all until I was on the point of going there and then honestly sort of like just freaked out at the possibility and the thought of going there but then sort of just ended up going anyway and sort of like dealt with it the way that people do. So the project arose sort of in that way accidentally, but also because I got very, very interested in it. Because as I started like spending more time reading, you know, the literature on the region and particularly sort of like the cultural, the cultural ecology literature and people like Julian Stewart and the, the sort of like the history of cultural ecology and the way that that was, so much of that was centered in the Amazon. And you had this really strong tradition of writing about the landscape and the impact of the landscape on people who live there and you know these debates around you know the relationship between people and environment and adaptation and these kinds of questions I got very interested in these um reading this sort of emerging literature that was happening at the time of 
people who were starting to figure out that people who lived in the region were really, really actively transplanting plant species, but had been doing this historically on a large scale, and also, you know, creating creating soils um, through, you know, these dark soils or black soils that people had been making through sort of like, I don't know if you know how much you know about this stuff, through like inoculating soils with, with um, different kinds of bacteria and stuff like this to create this, these like really rich, rich areas of soils and concentrations of, of useful plants across like large areas so that people were starting to map the region as a kind and using metaphors of, you know, like gardens and horticulture to replace you know, metaphors of wilderness and stuff like that. So you're getting this sort of like counter-narrative of the landscape as being made and produced in sort of cultural landscape. And I got really, really interested in that, particularly when I started to find out that this area that I was going to, people also had this history of, of working with the rivers. Um, and that was sort of novel. I hadn't come across that before. But when just sort of, you know, Talking to people and sort of collecting oral histories of people, there was this. People hadn't been there very long, but when they'd arrived there 30 or 40 years ago, they basically cut this cut this stream, and because it was very close to the mouth of the Amazon, it had turned into what looked like a river. So, you know, this was sort of like another, just like another artifact to add to this this sort of like emerging picture of what was happening in the region, and that then became an opportunity to think historically about people's relationship to the region. Um, in a in a different way, in a sort of like more active way. So it then became a story about, I guess, at the time I was thinking of it more in terms of like people's agency in relation to the landscape, rather than people being subject to the landscape. It was sort of like that kind of inversion, a sort of historical narrative about um, human agency in, in relation to the landscape was part of the sort of like a big part of the story that I wanted to tell in that project. This book established you as a deeply philosophical anthropologist and. Um, as you write in the introduction, you, you reimagined this book as a, a collection committed to keeping its object alive and in motion, which kind of speaks to what you were just talking about with this sort of iterative process between people and, and landscape. It is once a deeply historical book, it's ethnographically rich, and it's written um, very poetically. And I've found these characters of your writing to be really inspirational during my time as a, as a student and a graduate student. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about how you managed to weave these themes together, whether they're historical or ethnographic, um, through a sort of poetic means. It's a, it's a really good question. I don't. I mean, well, thank you for saying that about it. Um, it's it's a good question. I'm not sure I know how to answer it. I mean, I can tell you that you know my writing process is very very slow, and includes like endless revision, like endless revision. You know. You know, really, like at the sentence level, as well as at all the other all the other levels. So that sometimes I really worry that you know the writing becomes, you know, overwritten and overpolished through that through that process as well. But I think I've sort of developed a method, and I started to develop it through that while I was writing in Amazonia, of working with sort of constructing an archive, of which the fieldwork is part of that part of the archive, but there's a whole range of other materials that that are also part of it. And then the, the sort of the writing practice is is one of trying to figure out how to bring those things together until they reach a kind of density. I'm not sure if this is this is really answering answering your question, but but I guess I'm maybe one thing that might be helpful is well there's two there's two pieces of it I think. What one is that I'm very committed to thinking about the, you know, the effective charge of writing. Um, so, you know, some people think of that as poetics, you know, but that there's no, that language works and writing works, you know, through simultaneously through multiple levels. So I'm really interested in trying to think about how to create a writing experience that, or a reading experience that, so that the reader sort of like inhabits this inhabits the space of the book, but it's not necessarily so. Part of that is a sort of like cognitive relationship to the to the material and to the arguments and to whatever the information in the in the text. But that's that's never separate from the other elements of what's what's happening in the text at the same at the same time. Mm. So as this process has gone on through this like series of books, I think I've sort of like withdrawn more and more from the 
impulse to, you know, sort of like to persuade through through argumentation, um, and instead try to create a space, sort of like an experiential space, for readers to inhabit and come out of any way that they any way that they might do, without without me being able to really sort of like legislate what that outcome is going to be or how people are going to emerge from that. And not really, you know, and increasingly not wanting to do that, but really just wanting to see what comes out of that, you know, of, of people being inside that. So I don't really know how to answer, answer the question of how those things come together, except that I guess in my mind they're not really separate. You know, so part of trying to get that, part of trying to convey all the information that I feel like I need to convey is also, a lot of that information is maybe effective and narrative and experiential as well you know, in various ways, mm. so that these things just become tightly tied together. And then some of the, some of the point of, like, knowing where to let that go or where that effect has, has happened is, I think, sort of intuitive, maybe, and comes just from a long time of doing that. And then also, like, sorry to jump ahead, but, like, with, with this book anyway, I try... I, the one, Sorry, the one that I've just written... I was I was like trying to figure out how to how to do that in different ways because you know at this point it's you know I've been reading different things and the material was different and so I was trying to think you know trying to see what would happen if I pushed against the writing or pushed against the material in different ways to and also because the the themes of the book were different so they seemed to make different demands you know they were more about more sort of maybe to do with more to do with a generalized personal experience, you know, that I want. So there were like more specific things I think that I wanted people to to um, feel in in the book. Um, so that made different demands on the on the writing, or what the uh, what effects I was looking for in the writing. I think, which which makes me wonder. I mean, the some of the the themes that you're talking about there, Hugh, um, in terms of kind of building this archive, and then it seems like kind of diving into it in different ways and the building of an archive for a project and then the writing of a project seems slightly distinct. I'm kind of wondering about whether or not that's uh, something you impart to your students or or alternatively maybe uh, I'm just imagining do you encourage them to intuit their own uh, (laughs) style? Yeah um, okay so I teach a, I actually teach a course on called writing and ethnography that I've taught for you know off and on for for a few years now, and we pretty much just read fiction, and I try to the the sort of the the task of the course mm. is to read for the writing, not for the arguments. You know, so like graduate students are so trained to you know pull out the arguments from a book and to. You know, and then to critique those arguments or to think about them in, in sort of like formal terms and to look for the weaknesses and all this kind of stuff and to do a sort of like ideology critique. And I try to get them to resist that impulse and instead to think, out, think about the writing and the ways that the choices that the writer has made and the ways that they've tried to, the types of persuasion that they've, that they've engaged in and the ways that they've, deployed their evidence and sort of selected it and you know this kind of stuff um and sort of think more technically about about writing and then the other task that they have is to give themselves more sense of like the choices that they have with writing and that they have more control over their writing and that they maybe you know they maybe like think of you know they want to do this and what what are the different ways they could do this you know so they can and then they can think through these different through the readings they've done, but also to develop their skills and certain techniques as a reader, you know, like the, the ability to read as a writer, I guess, um, or the, the skills of reading as a writer. And so they, people also, students also write, every week they write something like a short passage, like not much more than like 300 words, something like that, every week, which then they, they work on and work on and work on. That's the idea anyway, every week until it's like this polished thing, which they then, which we all then share. I guess what I what I try to encourage them to do is to figure out what their own skills are and what their affinities are and what kind of writing they want to do. So rather than finding models of writing, more to try to figure out what it is that 
what kind of writing it is that they, they, they're good at or that they can develop the ability to be good at. So the last thing I want is for people to, you know, like imitate either any of the people they've read or, or definitely not to imitate me. And then to figure out sort of like what writing is appropriate to the task as well. You know, and to recognize that, you know, writing is also, you know, appropriate to different audiences and to different different venues and modalities. I think a lot of that is also about is about confidence. You know, people people getting the confidence to be able to do that and not being intimidated by the by the task. And and also, you know, also reading people who are really good. I think that's really important. Well, that was going to be yeah. my sort of cheeky follow-up question, was what, what is some of the fiction that you're assigning well, in this course? Yeah, and it changes. I mean, so, I mean, there's been some sort of, like, fixtures. People like Jamaica Kincaid and Jane Coates here. I like W.G. Sable, you know, so I always encourage people to read, to read him. Um, Patrick Modiano. Um, I also really like a lot. Um, I like these people who are like obsessed with one thing and sort of like repeatedly like try to try to like work through this problem over and over and over again. I find that very interesting. Um, this last time I read it, people read Sajah Hartman. I mean, it's not fiction, but it's, well, it's kind of fiction. Sajah Hartman's Wayward Women, which is also just an amazing book, I think, both for writing but also for this mm. question of you know like. Uh, you know, I mean, a lot of the course revolves around these, you know, issues that are really important to me about what are the limits of, you know, sort of like the faithfulness that you that we're supposed to have or want to have in, in ethnography. What do we owe? You know, so we read a lot of fiction, but the, but the constant question that comes up, which is a really big question for me too, is this question about... You know, like what? What's what's the what's the difference really between fiction and ethnography? I mean, what what? I mean, I mean, as in the difference, as in, you know, the difference often revolves around questions of fidelity to people, or fidelity to a site, or fidelity to your or sort of compact that you have with your reader. You know, in ethnography, we sort of have this compact that we're, to the best of our abilities, telling the telling some kind of truth about you know the people and the place that we've been or that we're writing about and yet at the same time we know that you know the whole question of truth is extremely problematic and we're not we we have a sort of ambivalence about what that truth is particularly in relation to representation because you know at this point we all know that there's this gap between representation and what's being represented so we know like the question of truth is always you know Mm. is always a problem yet we have this you know commitment to some sort of some sort of fidelity and responsibility to the people that we're writing about, and that we are writing about people, that the people who, who appear in our ethnographies are they're existing people, even if they're not, like, real in our text, you know, like, really represented. <laughs> they're existing people to whom we have some... Right, our accountability isn't clear at all. I mean, that's always a problem. But we have some responsibility. But we're, we're the only ones who... I mean, we establish that responsibility. I mean, nobody else really holds us accountable to that responsibility. I mean, maybe, maybe more so now in the, the gap between the field and the place we're writing from and the way the book's circulating is much less than it was when I started out 20 years ago, for sure. But still, right, there's this, there's this area that's really a problem which I think also reduces the gap between ethnography and fiction a lot. And then a book like Sajir Hartman's book, which is, you know, it's historical, but it's speculative, like it's explicitly speculative. She, she was working in the archives with these people and then develops these stories around them based on what she reads about, reads about them in the archive. You know, these seems to... Ra- and, and she'll explicitly be speculative and she'll, like, develop this very sort of, like, fictional-feeling narratives around them. So I feel like it's an important book for ethnography in that way and for anthropologists because of the questions that it raises... And I think we all, I'm, I'm, I don't know, if maybe I don't think it's just me, I think we all feel that when we're writing, writing ethnography, um, we're writing about people, and we know that, we know that we're creating this, we're creating this, if we're writing this kind of ethnography, okay, but we know that we're writing, we're, we're creating this, creating this representation which is going to circulate, both of a place and a person and a problem and these relationships and of ourselves, and we're really aware, we're also really aware of the, you know, like the gap, that's there, I think. And then there's sort of like this question of how we, how we relate to that, you know, how we, how we work with that gap, um, how explicit we make it or not, mm-hmm. or, 
you know, what we want its effect to be, what we feel. I don't know. These are, you know, these are really unresolved questions for me, as you can tell, right? Yeah. No, it's got me thinking about your second book, Insectopedia, and when the subjects that we're writing about aren't necessarily human and, and that gap of, of representation as well. Um, was there something in particular that turned you to the world of insects? I, I was really, in, I mean, at that point I was very, very interested in um, all kinds of non-human beings. And that, I think, was, was an outcome of having worked in the Amazon and really having to think about nature more than I more than I had done, or at least in a different way from the way I had done before, and I and I became interested in insects as a sort of limit case. There was work in animal studies at the time, and this is I guess I started writing in this in about probably in about two thousand two two thousand three. It's a long time ago now, but the work in animal studies that was around a lot of it was about a lot of it was about pets, you know, dogs and cats and whatever, um, and a lot of it was about primates. So it was all, not all of it, of course, but a lot of it was about, you know, these these animals which were sort of like quasi-humans and that were, you know, sort of like mirrors of humans. So people were, people's, a lot of what people were writing and why people were interested in animal studies was because they saw it as a way of writing about the human as a, as a category and also writing about writing through that about, you know, I think of somebody like Harriet Ritvo and this, you know, this historical work about, you know, about about class and particularly class, but also also some extent about race in 18th and 19th century Britain through like breeding, animal breeding and, and that that sort of thing. And and that was there was sort of like a mode of animal studies that was that was very much in, in that register. And I was I was interested in thinking, well, you know, what happens if if the animals that you're writing about um, just aren't amenable to that, you know. It's like they're really, they're really outside recognition, and they're really indifferent. They're really sort of like indifference is really what they, you know, is really the main, the main characteristic or one of them. Um, so that was that was sort of what it, what got me interested in them in the first place, I think. And also because, you know, I remember I remember when I finished in Amazonia, sitting in my office at Santa Cruz. And I had like two bookcases and one of them was all like books about the Amazon and the other one was all like books about like all this other, th- all this other stuff, you know, like anything else that I was interested in, which is a lot of other things. And I remember thinking, mm. so, you know, I could just like, I could keep doing that and become like somebody who really, really knows something about that, you know, like about the Amazon and, you know, like really become an expert in that. Or, you know, there's all this other like really, really interesting stuff. And that's sort of what went out, and I thought, oh, you know, then it's like, you know, there could be, you could just like, basically just write something which was really open, you know, so insects were really appealing in that way as well, because of the, just because of the range and variety, and just because the category is such a hopeless category, because it contains, you know, like the category itself, in a way, just like begs to be, you know, sort of exploded. And so that that just led to the form because of that, you know. Mm, there's a lot of affordances there. Huge amount, yeah. It was like very, 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 very generative and very, you know, like very exciting from that point of view, you know. So yeah, that was a that just felt like felt like you know after spending so long writing on this one thing, it just felt like you know giving myself I don't know just this fantastic opportunity and there was no nobody was stopping me you know it's like I discovered there was nobody gonna tell me I couldn't do that and that was you know at first you think oh somebody's gonna say you can't for whatever but no actually no people will just you can do what you want basically the protectors of the insect category would knock on your door and say and they didn't they didn't right nobody did they were just like you know it's like you're on your own just so you know, I can remember these conversations with people who said, well, yeah, but, you know, fine, of course, go off and do that. But there's a reason why people don't do stuff like that, because, you know, it's much better if, like, a team of people does that and then everybody gets to write their piece. So, you know, there were times I thought, oh, this was probably a really, really big mistake. But then, but then you know, it turns out okay in the end, so it's all right. But yeah, that was a real lesson to me that, oh, you know, it's like, oh, you can just do this. And nobody's going to tell you you can't. And I often think... Yeah, well, especially, you know, like, once you have a job, 
Yeah, I was, I was, I was going to ask you, you know? about that. I mean, <laughs> exactly. I guess I'm conscious. Yeah, that 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 kind of mobility and freedom to follow your nose, to follow your interest to different subject matters across time and place is perhaps becoming a little bit more difficult in the current age of you know, neoliberal universities and, and pandemics. So I was wondering if you have any reflections on that, whether, you know, how do you kind of maintain those kinds of, that, that freedom to move around in the academy, you know, not just for you, but how do you, how do you see um, maybe for other scholars as well? And, and, and then, of course, we, we need to get to your, your, your new book, which embodies this. This, this freedom of thought but yeah I was wondering first I guess about yeah. this so I think there are different kinds of mobility and I think some of them are really problematic I think some of the ones that I've done over the years have been really problematic and I'm, I'm sort of you know really trying to think through the research modality that I've been engaged in for a long time and trying to think if this is something that I still feel you know that I still feel that I want to do because in a, in a way I mean I could I could also make the case that it's just the embodiment of a certain kind of privilege that I'm feeling really suspicious of these days as well, um, for lots of reasons. And I have done gradually over, over, over the years and I've just sort of started to, started to try to think about it more seriously um, during, that, during the last book as well. So that's this, this, I guess there's different kinds of mobility. The mobility in terms of transdisciplinarity, I think is actually, or at least from, from my location here in, in, in New York, I feel is there's is um, increasingly available in some ways. I feel like the disciplines are actually undergoing a kind of, but this might just be because of my location, but I feel like the disciplines are undergoing a kind of breakdown, um, which I don't think is, I'm a little ambivalent about that. I mean, there's, but but I feel like, I guess I feel like the idea was a sort of like disciplinary-based transdisciplinarity, so a sort of like rigorous transdisciplinarity is something to, something to aspire to in some ways. But I feel like that kind of that kind of mobility, there's sort of a premium on when you look at um, funding agencies, the ways that problems, you know, like problems of various kinds are getting conceptualized as these like far-reaching transdisciplinary um, or multidisciplinary problematics, which need these, you know, like complex responses to feel like more, there's more and more, even within, within anthropology, there's more and more sort of, um, you know, work which isn't necessarily collaborative in terms of being done by teams, but is collaborative in terms of the literatures which are being addressed and the ways that people are trying to make their work reach across boundaries to speak to people outside the disciplines and the ways that foci are being formulated in terms of objects rather than disciplinary specialisations. So that, you know, people talk about, you know, like a geological turn or an ontological turn or an elemental turn or these kinds of things, which are inherently cross-disciplinary and actually which, which sort of like make a demand for different kinds of specializations. You know, that there's a sort of recognition that one perspective is necessarily incomplete because there's a demand to know something about geology or something like that. But specializations which are actually beyond the, you know, at a certain level are beyond the capacity of of somebody trained in a trained in a discipline, but yet which also call on that discipline because they're calling for expertise which is disciplinary based. I think all that in in some respects is very is very healthy and positive. I'm less, you know, keen on sort of like the branding which goes with it. But I think that's also part of the political economy of academia that that calls on that and which, you know, creates those spaces that people also want to occupy because it's a, it's a way of getting some visibility. So, you know, there's a sort of those kind of demands. They're just things that we live with, I think, and that people try to turn into opportunities as well, you know, which kind of also, which also sort of like cuts both ways because then you can get identified with that in ways which might not help people in career terms, particularly if they're just starting out. So there's like, you know, this, I think that works both ways. But in terms of the sort of like the transdisciplinary cross-disciplinary nature of that I think that I think all that sort of stuff is actually very can be very positive the modality of sort of like personal mobility I think is a is is another is a different kind of issue which I mean I guess there's a lot of soul-searching going on about those kinds of things and the pandemic in some ways has heightened that because it's forced a lot of us 
to rethink what our research methodology is just by necessity. I mean, I think particularly, you know, I'm working with a lot of graduate students, PhD students who just haven't been able to do their fieldwork and so have had to sort of try to figure out other ways of doing fieldwork. And, you know, at first everybody was, like, thinking of that in terms of this loss and a lack. And I think there's still some of that, of course, but also people have been incredibly creative at figuring out figuring out ways to you know, just access things they might not have been able to access before through through a sort of like turn to archives which are available online that they might not have spent as much time in otherwise. Different modalities of writing, different ways of just talking to people across like we're talking, you know, um, across continents, you know, this kind of stuff which wasn't which wasn't possible before. And hopefully some of this will con- will continue and maybe some more like collaborative modes that maybe will be supplemental to other ways of working or, I mean, I guess we don't know, right? We're just sort of still in this emergent space. But I I have got much more suspicious of the way that I've personally claimed this sort of like freedom of movement and mobility in the tradition of colonial anthropology or just post-colonial anthropology, you know, like to move to all these places and then like just, you know, like have this expectation that, you know, that people will just like, you know, let me address them and engage with them in this way. And then I can come back and write about it. I'm feeling, I felt uncomfortable actually with it, like right from the beginning, but I just participated in that. Now I'm, you know, I feel like I need to think through that more seriously than I have done, or less opportunistically. But I haven't really quite figured out how to do that. It's just that there's, I feel like there's more of a conversation about that, maybe. Um, and it's also generational, mm. I think, you know, mm. just reading the kinds of things that people in their 20s and 30s are writing about the discipline. You know, I feel like I'm being addressed through that and I have to respond to it, maybe not like in writing, but at least in my personal practice, you know, and think about it, take it seriously. That might be a good point to turn to your most recent work, the the Book of Unconformities, Speculations on Lost Time, uh, which is a deeply moving book and a book that I really enjoyed reading. But I've also really struggled to describe it or, or explain it to friends who have asked me what it is that I'm reading. <laughs> so I'm wondering how you describe this book and how you think about this book. It's a great question because, you know, I actually, I've never been able to give a good, a good description of it either. I mean, I don't mean because it's so, like, you know, incredibly profound or something. It's just like I just... It's a, it's a weird book because it, it seems like a very personal book, but in some ways it's actually not really in that it's a bit of a, mm. it kind of like refuses to be a memoir even though it looks like it's going to be there. And that's sort of deliberate. But, you know, it, it took a really, really long time to write and it went through a lot of different books on my way to writing it. It was, you know, it started off really being a book about, you know, that was sort of like organised around the border between life and non-life and animacy and inanimacy. And that was really the, the central question for me when I started writing about it. And then I was, so I was really interested in questions in, in your sort of like the material, in the material of stone. It was really a book about stone. And so when I first started talking about it and describing it to people, I said, well, you know, it's a, it's, it's a book about rocks and stones. Maybe it's an ethnography of rocks and stones. And that was sort of how it started. And then as I wrote it, and, and, I, and I actually really believe that, you know, if you, if you write books that are about objects, as I've done for a long time, oh, objects is probably the wrong word, but organised around, like organised around insects and organised around, around stones in this case, then those objects really, they really start to determine the way the book is written and so the way you think about the book. You know, they, they really do exercise some sort of like power over the over the writing and over the book itself. And in this case, you know, it really quickly, I mean, quickly, but it, it really, it became a book about, about time and then time and memory. You know, that just sort of really started to dominate the book. So I guess now if I was going to describe it, I'd say it's really, it's probably an attempt to figure out how to write about how to write about... Uh, see, I can't even do that. I can't do it either. I'd say it's... I'd say it's oh, boy. You know, I mean, I've written a book. I always tell people, well, even if you don't know what the book's about while you're writing about it, you always know afterwards. But, yeah, I, I don't... I guess it's a book about time. I don't know, is it? That sounds so pretentious, right? I mean, it's maybe time, memory, loss. I don't know, those kind of those kinds of things. I mean, it's... it's a, if, I, if, I can, if I can jump in and, do, and tell you about your own book. Yeah, help, help. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's a, it's a, I think that's a very good description. It's a book about time, but through the particular, through the, you know. One of the things I, I find really remarkable about it is how deep you go on something that's kind of, you know, that can be very small, like a, a bridge. And you'll, you'll find out everything you can about that bridge. <laughs> yeah, or, yeah, or, it's or that quarry or that stone. And this is maybe a, a place to bring up a thread that you're pulling on before, which is I, I read an interview where you described yourself as a, a city person and you're saying before you grew up in London, mm. New York, New York again, and then some time in New Haven, uh, Santa Cruz, Brazil. I'm a city person. I've discovered this about myself. And I guess I'm interested in your view uh, of the city as a place for anthropology because, you know, anthropologists know, you know, there's this strong classical divide between the the, the, the remote field site and then the, the metropole academy that you were you're problematizing just before. I don't think that's at all true of your most recent book. Your most recent book is, seems to almost occur sometimes out of walks you've taken in, you know, around New York. Maybe this is a good place to ask you about you know, the city as a place for anthropology for you yeah. now. I don't know that I'd really survive very well outside cities at this point um, or ever really managed to. Yeah, I, I think for me it's the um, serendipity and endless simulation of, of being in a city. The constant awareness of movement and excess that there's just, for me anyway, I'm constantly in this position of having to sort of struggle to get things into into focus and into some sort of, well, you know, like struggling, struggling to get something into organize, into, into some kind of like organization and then always having that disrupted. I feel like it's, I mean, maybe excess is a good is a good word for it. A lot of this book is about is a sort of excavation, you know, like an excavation of of a historical excavation. Well, sort of like historical and then prehistorical, and then like figuring out that there's really, you know, there is no stopping point, you know, except the arbitrary stopping point. But that the further you go, the more demand there is for sort of like speculative narratives. You know, the quality, <laughs> it's sort of like the quality of the data that you have or the information you have to build a narrative out of becomes thinner and thinner and it's not as if you can build a better one when the when the data seems like it's really reliable it's all like really speculative it's just the material that you have to do it out of becomes more more obviously speculative do you know what I mean so like if you're looking at you know like if you're if you're if you're looking at a an archaeological site from 4,000 years ago you know that everybody is basically making it up. You know, you know, you know that, <laughs> you know that, like what they're going from, and you know, like you read the stuff that people are writing, and it's great. Right? It's like heroic. You know, like what they're doing to like create this, create this picture and the story of what happened there. It's 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 fantastic, but you know, it's completely speculative. Even though it's also at the same time, you know, incredibly material and data driven and and all this. At least you know, for many people, depending on you know the kind of school of archaeology or have you. I mean, with geology, I mean, really, I mean, even more so, really. I mean, it gets, it gets just, you know, it just gets, you know, like completely fantastic at a certain point. But then that really makes you think as well as what, you know, like what you're doing when you're like reading from the 1930s or something. You know, you have this like massive, massive, massive material to work from that you're putting, that you start to put together in these ways that is, you know, it's like you have procedures for doing it. But it's also really, really, you know, like arbitrary and sort of like a fictional, sort of like a process of a kind of sort of like fictionalization or like methodologically it's a kind of fictionalization what you're doing. So it's a kind of continuity, even though there's all the, there's this incredible attenuation as well. And I got really fascinated by that. And there's something for me about being in the city and thinking and and seeing all this coexistence, I mean, I mean, you know, New York is a really, really, really messy city. The infrastructure is terrible. You know, you feel like at any point it's just going to fall apart. I mean, they've done nothing here for I don't know how long. You know, it's just like on the point of 
it's a miracle that it it functions you know I, I mean it really is it's just city is just it's like I don't know what is it a 19th century city at best I don't know it's just like it's just another, apart from the pockets where it's you know like completely completely perfect you know apart from those pockets it's just you know everything else is just left a ruin and so you can actually see this you can just see the the layers of it they're like right in front of you all the time it's like a, it's it's like an archaeological site really so it doesn't take a lot of imagination you're like you're like moving through this like simultaneous massive like temporal mess all all the time and everybody everybody is doing that you know and then when you talk to people everybody is like everybody is evoking different moments of the past all the time and every store that you go into has all this layering of or every street you walk down like has all this layering of these different moments in like the recent past and not so recent past and then people like find this stuff you know like find like the african burial ground or seneca village or you know the stuff up in inwood that i write about you know, which then takes you, like, back into these other histories, which, of course, are still completely present as well, because we're still living in the wake of these, like, horrible histories in, in America, you know, like, which are just, like, dominating life here all the time, and so you have to face them. There's a sort of intensity about the city, I think, that has become really, really important to me, like a temporal intensity and a social intensity, um, mm. so, which has become sort of, like, essential for me, I think. That's really fascinating. I really like the way that you put that around thinking about the city, not so much in spatial terms, but in a, in a temporal intensity and in a, in a, in an entanglement of temporal yeah, things. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that that comes out in your book and that, that is a really interesting way of thinking about things. But I, I wanted to pick up on what you were just talking about there with the different sorts of histories that come out through these sort of explorations. And in all three of your books, you've developed this kind of knack for shining a subtle light on the violence of colonial histories and how they reverberate in the present in lots of different ways. Um, and I wondered if you could speak a little bit about how you've managed to keep this sort of thread or tension in your books without ever making it an explicit focus of your books, but it's, it's yeah. sort of constantly yeah. there. I mean, I feel like it was more of an explicit focus in, in the latest book than it was in previous ones, and that was partly a function of living through the Trump years in America where there was a kind of horror and urgency about life that just placed this demand, even though I've, I've sort of always tried to not respond to the immediate demands of politics because I feel like at some level they they shift so quickly that it's important to try to keep some sort of distance from at least from the the sort of like topical immediacy of it but in terms of sort of the weight let's say the weight of the weight of colonialism or the weight of the weight of you know inequalities or whatever we would call them the rate the weight of historical race and class and whatever, however, whatever we're going to call them. I feel like those are, if you like, the atmosphere that we live in or swim in and that I'm, that I'm writing in. So it's, it's like always present and always conditioning of anything that we're doing. And then the sort of the, the narrative challenge is to sort of like figure out the moments when that needs to be foregrounded or it needs to be, like, brought back as, not as a, sometimes as a reminder, and sometimes just to, as a sort of, like, insistence that this is the thing which is always there and which everything else is always sort of, like, built on and dependent on and subject to in anything that you're talking about. That everything is always in the, the sort of, like, historical present. Um, we're, we're always in that. So, you know, it, it's, for me, I guess it's, it's a question of figuring out those moments, like sort of those narrative moments when you, when you need to, to gesture towards those things or figure out analytically the ways in which it's really important to insist on how they're formative of the moment that I'm, that I'm writing about. But at the same time, trying to create space to write about the thing in itself, I guess. So yeah, maybe maybe something like an atmosphere, but that maybe even seems a little a little too weak. 
you know, I have this chapter in, in the book of Unconformities, which is a, which is nominally about Greenland. But what I was really, really preoccupied by was the Museum of Natural History in New York. And in fact, a lot of the book is about is about the museum and about about New York. You know, it sort of like runs through the book, and trying to think about that as a site for anthropology, but as a site also as this this site for extraction, and then also as something where there's like still this this absence that needs to be filled right because all these things have happened all these things have you know so in in this particular case you know these meteorites were brought back from from greenland and i have this like really really detailed account of how that of how that happened that created you know that 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 created as history in these communities in greenland and did something to people's lives there that demanded some demanded some reparations. Some reparations were actually agreed to, and then were never fulfilled. And then we, as visitors to the museum and as the museum itself, continue as if that history is not as if it's like a history in the past, or as if it doesn't, you know, as if you know it's like vacated. You know, the the these these objects, these meteorites now um, exist in the museum, just like completely recontextualized. So you know, there's this problem of how of what kind of work you need to do to to like resituate them. You know, is it a, is it a question of like taking them back and, and putting them back in Greenland? Do people even want them? I mean, there are people who do, but generally, to people, I mean, it's not even really necessarily. I think at this point, that important to people. Um, there's there's things that are way more important to them in terms of you know quality of life and conditions of life, although that has a symbolic importance. But there's also this, the persistence of the relation, of that, that unequal relation or colonial relation, I guess, it, that continues just by their, their unmarked presence in the museum so that we can all just go and see them in this way with like the small label which doesn't even really refer to them, refer to that history, just sort of like indicates it, but doesn't really refer to them. So it's like they, these objects exist as this problem, you know, like this unresolved, this unresolved problem. Yeah, and so then, then the problem of writing about them becomes, you know, of sort of like creating a creating a narrative that resituates them, I suppose, and so that people who read it then have to recognize, you know, have to recognize them in this other context um, and understand them in a different way. But that's also so inadequate, you know, like as a. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry to step on your, no, please, your answer please. Hugh, but it, it, it maybe gets back to that theme you were talking about before in terms of excess like when you try to write about something there's always an excess there's always a remainder you can't you can't get at it all and I think one of the things uh, both Matt and I uh, are really interested about in your work is that you also introduce these you know, uses of, let's say, photography, images, illustrations that are in your books that you often don't give a lot of uh, context for or elaboration of. You don't always say, you know, refer to that photo and then give a, tell us what we're looking at. It almost seems like there are these slices in here of, of the world that you're talking about, that you're writing about, I should say, to be specific, that you're giving us some other way into because exactly you can't can encapsulate them. Uh, am I am I way off? Could you elaborate? I guess on, no, on how you choose those images and and, and 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 what you're trying to achieve with them. Sometimes, yeah. I mean, I think that's exactly right. Although I think they, you know, my interest in them has changed over time. So they they have different functions. I mean, one of them is is just sort of as prompts for writing for me. So when I'm writing. Sometimes I don't know where to go and I'll put an image in and that will, it, it, that can create a sort of break in, the, break in the writing which allows me to do something else in the same way that a section break might. But it, but it provides, provides some more information and another kind of texture. So it, it can help you, it can help me sort of like move the writing a little bit. So that's one thing it does. It also provides sort of like additional information in a very sort of like simple way that there's, here's something you can see that I, I'm just not able to convey in writing. 
in the same way. Sometimes it's an illustration of the writing, like I've written about something, and then you can see it, and when you see it in that way, it lets you just, as a reader, have a different, have a slightly different perspective. Like, there's these photos, for instance, in the um, in that Greenland chapter where you see um, Robert Peary with some Inuit people who he's giving, he's giving like payment to. And one of the things that really strikes you about the about the image is that he's like 18 inches taller than them, and it's extremely striking. There's like you know a whole row of these people, and he's just and it's like it's just so striking, right? Um, it's very it's very crude actually the image, but he included it in his book. And there's a similar similar like parallel one of of um, Josephine Perry, his wife, doing this doing the same kind of thing, but with women. So they they can function in that sort of way, um, but I think also they provide a break for the reader. So I think they're also this thing where, you know, an image, particularly I like to use sort of like grainy images that are sometimes sort of a little hard to read. And sometimes I I like to think of readers like stopping and really spending some time with an image, like they're reading and then they'll just like stop. And maybe they'll go back to that image when they read something else later. So the images sort of like function they can function as a kind of parallel text or a parallel reading process or reading experience. And I imagine people like just like flipping through the book, looking at images as well, because I'll do that. They just do, there's a lot of different things that they, that, that they can do, much of which I think is out of my control. And I, I like that idea as well. You know, I like to think of the footnotes as sort of like a parallel text that people can read in. And I try to give like a ton of information in, in footnotes as well that people can work with who have that inclination you know um and Im- the images maybe do something something like that as well they sort of like exist in the text in like a sort of like deep context in the text um and sometimes like you say you can i'll directly refer to them and say well look at this and you know like try to draw people's attention to something but you know like in completely the opposite way okay so i've just been reading this book i don't know if you know it called um in memory of memory by maria stepanova She's a, she's a Russian writer. It's, it's a really interesting, interesting book. Um, and it's a book about memory and very creatively written. And she has this chapter near the beginning where, and she doesn't include any images in the book, but she has this chapter near the beginning where she describes these photographs. Each photograph gets like a couple of paragraphs and there's like, it's like a, I don't know, 20-page chapter and then she has like 20 images and she numbers them and then she describes them. And they're sort of like family photos. And she describes them in, in detail, you know? And then after that, she has a chapter about why she doesn't like images. And, <laughs> and, and right, how she thinks, you know, like, images are basically bad, you know? And how she doesn't, as, you know, she's like writing against images. And it's just very, you know, it was so interesting to me to just to try to think about that as sort of like, in a way, the opposite of what I'm doing. It made me feel, in a way, like my use of images is very superficial. You know, her descriptions are both, you know, like really precise and also extremely, um, she has a lot of commentary in them, you know, like about the way people are standing and what they're doing and, you know, like assessments of their psychology and this kind of, this kind of thing, you know. But she doesn't give you the chance, I mean, she wants, you, you have to picture that image, she doesn't give you the chance to see it. I guess that's a different way of creating an atmosphere within the book, right? So um, either you're leaving some things left unsaid to create a kind of uh, some sort of speculative or imaginative space, or you're leaving that visual space sort of left unsaid and, and, and having to use your imagination, your speculative thought to create that kind of image in your head. And I guess this is one of the things that I really love about your books and that they do create these atmospheres that you sort of sink into. And we here at the, at the Conversations in the Anthropology podcast are like pretty interested in creating a, a critical public anthropology that, that does sort of speak to an academic audience, but also a public audience. And I think these writing techniques that you've developed are really important to the ways in which your work seems to embody this as well. And I'm wondering if it's a, a, a conscious sort of decision that you're making around keeping these books relevant to both anthropology as a discipline, but also accessible to a, to a broader yeah. public. Yeah. Can I first say something? You made me think about something about images as well when you said that. Can I quickly say that? Which is that one of the things I'm interested in with 
including images in the way that I do, is that when people look at images, because I tend to I tend to be very obsessed, <laughs> on, as you pointed out, with more and more detail and in a way just more and more context, you know, to like an to an obsessive extent, I would say. And so I kind of think that one of the things that you can do with those images is you can really locate them. So I think some of the work that I'm doing is when I put an image in there, you can see that image, you know everything around that. It's like you know what's outside the frame, both spatially and temporally, and the sort of social relations that you might see in that see in there. You know, I tend try to do a lot of work so that when you look at that image, you can really like reflect about it in many think about it in many ways you know and that it's larger than the frame and you can sort of like expand that frame so I think that's one of the things that, that I just wanted to, to add that I was just thinking when you as you were talking but in terms of a sort of public writing yeah it's something I've, I've really that's really important to me so the last two books were published with trade presses um, not university presses and that was really important to me I wanted to write for, I don't want to say a larger audience in terms of numbers, but maybe an academic and non-academic audience. So I wanted to write the books that I wanted to write. I mean, I guess that was part of it. I felt like the books that I wanted to write or the, the books that I can write are readable by people who aren't special, academic specialists. And a lot of the work that I do is to try to make them interesting to both audiences. So some of that, and, and some of the footnoting and the sort of like scholarly apparatus, I think, is very much directed towards that academic audience. And, and part of the generosity of anthropologists, I think, is that they've been willing to go with that and to accept that and be interested in that. You know, to take it on faith that the theory is embedded in it and not like, oh, you know, there's like all these, you know, like mistakes or whatever. You know, I mean, people haven't, I feel like people haven't really read, read, you know, read me in that way, and I'm grateful for that, you know. Um, it's a generous kind of reading I think I've had so far. And then on the other hand, I think a lot of it is to do with feeling like um, I trust a reader. You know, I, I feel like I have a lot of trust in a reader. You know, of all kinds of readers, anybody who opens the book, really. I mean, of course, there's going to be people who just don't like it and don't find what they hope to find. And I think the memoir thing is part of that. I think there are people who want it because of the way the book was packaged and marketed, you know. But I think, you know, I sort of trust people to, in the same way that I do, if I'm reading something and I get tired of it or I feel like it's not, I'm not particularly interested in what that person's doing, then I'll maybe, like, skate over that point and not feel like I have to, like, really, really, you know, extract every last like, you know, like, muscle out of it. And I feel like that's the kind of reading I'm sometimes asking people to do who aren't specialists as well. Like, there's going to be certain things that they're really not not going to be interested in, and they'll read past that. And the same thing for academic academics. Might There might be things that just don't seem like... They're not close enough on topic for them or whatever that they'll want to read it in that way. So I'm sort of asking for a certain kinds of reading, I think, because I'm reaching across different sorts of audiences... Some of that, I think, is definitely, yeah, it's definitely about trusting people to go with a text where they might not always feel comfortable or always feel in control of what they're reading. And especially when it's not sort of, it's it's sort of like not pedagogical writing in the sense that, well, here's what I'm telling you and here's what you're going to take away from it and here's what I want you to know. You know, when you're not writing like that, I think you're asking for people to feel comfortable in a space which is not always entirely familiar you know, and that, that implies a lot of trust between you as a writer and, and a reader. They have to trust you, you have to sort of trust them as well. I feel like that's kind of an important element of it. And so then, then you know, I'll sort of like take more risks. So like in that, in this book that we're talking about, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of these like really, really long sentences that I sort of expect people to get lost in and kind of want them to get lost in and then have trouble reading and want to maybe go back and figure out where they were and you know, some sort of, like, ugly writing that they have to, like, grapple with and this sort of stuff, you know, and it's, like... But that's... So I want people to, like, accept the challenge of that and realise that it's kind of like a game, but it's also like an experience. I do remember a page where <laughs> it is one sentence, yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a few of them. And, you know, some people some people like that and other people hate it, and that just seems normal. 
but that's kind of like the um, for me that's sort of like the compact you have with the reader yeah. you know I guess I'm sort of like looking for a reader who's who's sort of like okay with that and maybe we'll push back against it but we'll push back in it not like not like, not like you've done something this. wrong yeah exactly yeah. yeah but like is is sort of like mm. interested enough to like play with it or try it and see that I'm actually doing I'm actually it's it's deliberate it's not like because I don't know how to do it a different way it's like I'm doing it because I'm trying to figure something out you know I think it's a, it's a really interesting thing because I, I think often we talk about in the discipline if whatever that is when we talk about public anthropology we talk about public anthropology as this kind we what we mean are, are these kind of plain language you know explanations let's say of research that you wrote a like somebody wrote an op-ed for a newspaper or they you know they 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 made a more plain language version of of what they they do but uh i think work like yours and things like podcasts you know these are all other forms of public anthropology. exactly i totally agree i totally agree and i think it's a real like a hundred percent agree I think I think it's a real mistake to underestimate your audience and also to be too instrumental about what you're doing because there's honestly I don't think we should believe that an argument necessarily lands you know in the way that we think it's going to I mean we've all been reviewed or had conversations where people have just completely misinterpreted what we're doing and read an argument completely backwards and thought we're doing something or even when you make an argument there's no reason to think that it's going to convince if you make it in the way that you know like in plain language or in a like this kind of persuade you know like a conventionally persuasive way I feel like you can there's like so many different modalities of operating when you're asking people to respond and to think. And we, we shouldn't, it's really important not to be too narrow about that. Part of what I'm, I think of myself as trying to do is, is, is sort of like encourage modalities of thinking and of exploratory thinking. You know, like I said, without necessarily any legislated outcomes, because I actually don't believe that you can produce any. However, like straightforwardly, you might want to argue I don't think there's any guarantee of success in that. So I'm, I'm actually kind of suspicious of this plain English, or which is close to like an idea of dumbing down, honestly. Like, you know, like we make our theory accessible or something. But I think we should be suspicious of underestimating our, underestimating our readers or our audience. People are, you know, frighteningly sophisticated, you know. And academics aren't necessarily by any means the most sophisticated. been listening to another episode of conversations in anthropology this episode was recorded on the traditional ancestral and unceded territory of the ghana people the wurundjeri people of the kulin nation and the lenape hocking and the lenape people of manhattan this episode was produced by matt barlow and timothy neal and edited by matt tim and cameo daly conversations in anthropology is supported by the australian anthropological society and made in partnership with the american anthropological association you can find us on twitter at at AnthroCombo, and on all popular podcast players. We'll be back in a month's time with a wonderful episode produced by Cameo Daly. Until then, take care.